You're listening to a sermon podcast for a time like this from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Last week we had the story of David and Goliath. It's set at a time when David was still a teenaged boy. It marked his first meeting with King Saul, who, as you may recall, had lost credibility in the eyes of God and of the prophet Samuel. The reader at that point already knows that David has been anointed by Samuel to be the new king, but Saul was entirely unaware of that fact. Now this week, we have David's aching lament over the deaths of King Saul and his son Jonathan. So much has transpired between the stories So much has been left out by the lectionary, so let me offer a brief recap. After defeating Goliath, David had found himself taken into the royal household, where his deep friendship with Jonathan, the king's son, is formed. King Saul is beginning to show signs of a very troubled soul, marked by suspicion, jealousy, and rages of anger. The one thing that soothes him is when David plays his lyre, but even that begins to strain. Saul arranges for his daughter Michal to marry David, thinking it will be a great way to keep an eye on this increasingly popular young man he finds so threatening. But it turns out that Michal actually falls in love with David, which makes Saul all the more enraged. Eventually, David has to flee for his life. Along with a group of his loyal soldiers, he begins a period of time when he's almost a Robin Hood sort of bandit. He even lands up in the pay of the Philistine king for a time, which is a kind of ultimate irony. King Saul just keeps unraveling chapter by chapter, making several attempts to hunt down and kill David, the cat-and-mouse game complete with moments even Hollywood could not have come up with, is exciting stuff. Eventually, in his desperation, Saul goes to consult a medium at Endor, He asks her to call up the spirit of Samuel from the grave so he can ask for Samuel's counsel. That moment of wanting to summon the dead reveals just how far Saul has fallen away from an Israelite faith. It unveils how utterly lost he's become. Then the first book of Samuel ends with yet another great battle against the Philistines in which Israel is routed. Saul and Jonathan both die. From the midst of the battle, Saul can see that they will be defeated. 
And he begs his armor bearer to kill him so that the Philistines, quote, may not come and thrust me through and make sport of me. But the armor bearer just couldn't bring himself to do it. Saul then threw himself on his own sword. And when the Philistine soldiers discover his dead body, they strip him of his armor and cut off his head and take it back to their city in celebration of a great victory. It is a gruesome ending for a king who at the beginning had held such promise. Well, all of this occasions David's lament that we read this evening. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain upon your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Some might find it odd that David, who'd been so at odds with King Saul, hunted by him, attacked by him, loathed by him, how he could honestly lament with such passion. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war perished. And you can understand David's grief over losing Jonathan, with whom he shared a deep and even passionate friendship. But Saul? Why this grief over Saul? Let me cite Walter Brueggemann at some length. Brueggemann writes, When Israel witnesses David in his grief, it sees David in his fullest, most faithful, most powerful form. The poem marks a deep, precious, and hurtful moment in the life of Israel. The poetry of grief looks past the rancors of father and son, the deception of the son and the rage of the father. Those gossip-driven tensions are now unimportant. Death has a way of permitting us to focus on the larger realities, to transcend the details of hurt and affront. This singing is an act of lyrical skill and of political courage. It's also an act of stunning humanness. Here is a man utterly naked in his grief which is also the grief of his people. David knows that in the loss of his king, his brother, his advocate, there is loss in which all of us lose. There is in Israel honest singing in the midst of death. Israel is largely defeated, but not yet muted. End quote. David's lament, in other words, speaks to the power of lament as a public act. The loss needs to be honestly named. The grief needs to be expressed. Otherwise, the people are muted. To be muted in the face of such a loss is a kind of defeat all of its own. Lament involves the courage to say aloud what is really going on. And that provides a fascinating bridge 
to tonight's gospel reading. The reading begins with a man named Jairus coming to Jesus in utter need and naked vulnerability, speaking words of what is going on for him in his life. My daughter is dying. This is courageous because Jairus is named as one of the leaders of the synagogue. And already by this point in Mark's account, such leaders have begun to express hostility toward Jesus for things like breaking Sabbath law. Never mind that because Jairus is desperate. His posture is one of being just on the edge of lament because he fears that deep loss is imminent. Please help her. And Jesus does. But on the way to Jairus' home, he has this encounter with the woman who has suffered from hemorrhages for 12 years. She doesn't speak, but she's not mute. She enacts her need, her lament, by reaching out to touch Jesus' garment. It's an act that would have rendered him unclean in the eyes of the law because she was bleeding, hemorrhaging. Immediately, her hemorrhage stopped. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And then this. Immediately, that's Mark's favorite word, remember? Immediately, aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? It's fascinating, right? He feels a literal sort of exchange of his healing power into whoever had touched him, just as she felt in her body that she had been made whole. The disciples can't fathom his question. Look at the crowd. How could we ever tell who touched you? That's the moment when the woman's desperate, enacted lament of reaching out turns to speech. She now speaks. She confesses that it was she who had touched his clothes. Mark says that, quote, she told him the whole truth, which means she told Jesus how ill she had been and how she'd felt his healing presence soak into her very body. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. There still remains Jairus' dying daughter. The child, Mark tells us, is 12 years old. So she was born at about the same time as that woman began to suffer her hemorrhages. There is a subtle linking of the two, though Mark doesn't explain it. He wants the reader to notice it. The messengers arrive to tell Jairus, it's too late. Your daughter has died. Stop troubling the teacher. There's nothing anybody can do anymore. Jesus overheard those words, but I think he also saw the look of grief on Jairus' face. Do not fear. Only believe. Let us go to her. When they arrived at the house, quote, Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly, lamenting. 
but he tells them to stop. The story isn't over. Life has not left her. She will live. You see, closing the door on their grief, stifling their lament, is that what he's doing? I mean, isn't that the sort of lamentation that should be offered when a child has died? And yes, yes it is. But Jesus has earlier heard Jairus' vulnerable and frightened plea for help, and he is already answering it. Talitha kum, little girl, get up. And she does. Get her something to eat, he says. Don't spread word of this. Why not? Well, already so many people are coming to him. Already his movement is growing. He's getting renowned, but they don't understand the depths of what he is meant to bring to them. So slow the movement down. People will bear witness, as they did in the market square when I spoke to that poor woman. But this is going to take time. The story I am living cannot be rushed. But do know this, Jairus. Because you summoned the courage to come to me in your vulnerability, to name the truth of what is going on in you in your life, your daughter lives She lives as surely as that woman in the market is now whole and well. In the case of David's lament, the loss, the deaths of Saul and Jonathan, of king and prince, is simply named the grief given full expression. It was all that could be done at that moment. And it was precisely what was needed, not to fall mute, but to express grief, to weep. In the case of these gospel women, naming the truth and the fear of loss and those deep needs led to healing and life. There's something in that to be learned about prayer. Especially prayer in times of the greatest, deepest needs. Lament is needful. Prayers of pleading can be needful. We don't know the outcome. Can't possibly. Often can't understand why this seems to be a restoration and this seems to be just silence. But the hard things still need to be voiced and voiced to God. For to be muted in the face of loss or pain is a kind of defeat all of its own. Of course, we lament with hopes that there will be resolution. Of course, we cry out with prayers that there will be restoration. But before any of that, we need the courage to tell the truth of our hurts and our lungs, and our losses, and our grief. That is gospel, too. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church, including further resources during these days of the COVID-19 global pandemic, or to provide support for our online work, 
visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. Thanks for listening.